This afternoon, we will be considering Baptist Catechism number 43. It asks, what shall be done to the wicked at the day of judgment? Answer, at the day of judgment, the bodies of the wicked, being raised out of their graves, shall be sentenced together with their souls to unspeakable torments with the devil and his angels forever. The scripture reading for this afternoon comes from Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. There the apostle writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found from for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This now the reading of God's word. May he bless the teaching of it this afternoon. Talk of hell is weighty. It's a very heavy and serious subject. And every Christian should feel this heaviness within their soul when they think of someone being sentenced to hell. It's right that they do. It is similar to the heaviness that fills a courtroom when a criminal is tried, convicted, and finally sentenced. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this where there's a trial and there you are present. It's a serious trial, perhaps the penalty at stake being life in prison or even death. Everyone in the courtroom can feel the weightiness of the moment. Everyone knows that something very serious is happening. And even if all agree that the man is guilty and the penalty is just, those who have love in their hearts will feel a sense of sorrow even for the condemned, knowing that a life has been ruined by sin. And how much more is the weightiness of the final judgment and eternal damnation? It is certainly right to say that the Christian should never rejoice at the thought of someone going to hell. The Christian should feel sorrow at the thought of even their worst enemy coming under God's condemnation. Just as it would be concerning if a courtroom erupted in jubilant celebration when the sentence of death is pronounced upon the condemned, so too it would be concerning if someone rejoiced in their heart concerning the thought of a man going to eternal punishment. Only one who is consumed with anger and a desire for vengeance could feel such a thing in their heart. As I've said, it is right that we feel a sense of sorrow for those condemned, for this is a very weighty matter. But let us be sure not to err in another direction. And that is to consider the judgments of God to be somehow unnecessary or unjust. I'm afraid that many have erred in that direction in our day and age. Uh, They have no room in their thoughts for the final judgment or for God's just judgments. We cannot make that error, uh, brothers and sisters. While it is true that the thought of men coming under the judgment of God is weighty and ought to produce a sense of sorrow, 
It is also true that we ought to say that this is right and even good. If we go back to the courtroom that I mentioned earlier, you'll see what I mean. If, if when the guilty murderer is sentenced to death, the courtroom erupts in jubilant and cheerful celebration, that shows that men are very angry and vengeful. And this cannot be the disposition of the Christian. But will anyone dare to say that it is wrong for them to rejoice in the fact that justice has been served? Will anyone dare to say that those who have lost a loved one at the hands of the murderer are wrong to consider the judgment to be right, fitting, and even good. And so you see that justice will always produce a mixture of thoughts and emotions. It is right for us to grieve over the destruction that sin brings, but it's also right for us to rejoice when justice is served. If we rejoice in this way over the just judgments of men, how much more should we rejoice over the just judgments of God? And brothers and sisters, rest assured... God's judgments are always perfect. They are always perfectly just. God is not driven by a passion for vengeance as we sometimes are. So He is never moved to overdo it in His judgments. In fact, the Scriptures reveal that He takes no pleasure at all in the death of the wicked. Listen to Ezekiel 33.11. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? This is what the Lord says. And when God judges, He does not judge with limited knowledge as we do, for He is all-knowing. Human judges and juries do their best to judge according to what they know. They rely upon evidence. They rely upon testimonies. But they do not see for themselves whether or not the crime was committed. Not so with God. The judge of all the earth sees everything with perfect clarity. He even knows the thoughts of man and the intentions of the heart. He does not struggle with the issue of limited knowledge when he administers justice. And when God judges, he will get it perfectly right, for he is just. The punishment will fit the sin, and perfectly so. Psalm 96.10 speaks to this. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the people with equity. Equity means rightness or fairness. God's judgments will be perfectly right and fair. And this is why Paul says in Romans, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that... Every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. I think that is an interesting little remark there. That at the judgment, every mouth will be stopped. No one will say, God, you got it wrong, in other words. You know, in our prisons, there are men and women who insist that they are innocent. Some of them probably are, for we are flawed in our judgments. But many of them are, in fact, guilty. They know it, but they lie. They say that they're innocent. Their mouth is not stopped by these judgments of man, these judgments of juries and judges. They continue to speak. They say, I'm innocent, when in fact they are guilty. There will be none of that on the judgment of the last day. For God will judge with perfect equity, and all will see it. And this truth should bring a kind of comfort to the people of God, a strange kind of comfort. This world is filled with sin, wickedness and injustice, 
We long for justice because we are made in the image of God who is just. And so it is comforting to know that on the last day, God will right every wrong. And isn't it interesting how even those who do not believe in God or in the Christ whom He has sent will comfort themselves with the idea of justice in the afterlife when faced with some great evil? This predator will get what is coming to them, they say. Or this terrorist who killed thousands of innocents will pay in the life to come. These same people, though, who comfort themselves with the idea of justice in the afterlife deny that hell exists for common folk. They hope it exists for those who are particularly heinous, but they will deny that it exists for people like them. They assume that hell is sparsely populated, I guess. They assume it is for Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin, and other characters like these. But when it comes to the common man, hell is a myth to them. Those who think in this way are right, uh, are right to take some comfort in the fact that wrongs will be made right in the end, and that justice will be served. But they are terribly wrong to minimize their own sin and the sin of others. The Scriptures teach that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The Scriptures also teach that the wages or penalty for sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, it is true there are particularly heinous sins, but all sin is truly heinous and will be punished on the last day unless we are found in Christ and washed in His blood. And so I would encourage you, friends, not to believe the lie that your sin is not serious. It is truly terrible for, for humans to live in the world that God has made, to enjoy His blessings in this life, and to partake of His common mercy, but to fail to give Him honor and glory. How ungrateful we are by nature. And not only do we fail to honor our Creator, we worship the creature instead. We rob God of the glory that is due His name. This is a heinous sin deserving of God's just condemnation. And add to this the disrespect we have shown to mother and father and to others with authority over us, the hatred we have, in our, to our, have shown to our fellow man, our sexual immorality, our thievery, our dishonesty. We are ungrateful sinners by nature. Do I really need to convince you of this, by the way, that we are ungrateful sinners by nature? It is strange how we read the news and say, look at all the wickedness in the world. Look at all of it. The world is such a wicked place, we say, but we are unable to see the wickedness in our own hearts. We see it in the lives of others while convincing ourselves that we and those who are close to us are basically good. We're delusional, really, in our sin nature. We're blind to the truth that we are wicked and need a Savior unless the Lord is gracious to open our eyes. Brothers and sisters, God would be just to send us to hell for all eternity for our sin against Him. That is the truth. He would be just to do this, for failing to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. But He is merciful and kind, as you know. He has provided a Savior, Christ Jesus the Lord. Question 43 of our Catechism helps us to understand these things. It asks, What shall be done to the wicked at the day of judgment? And I'd like to take you through the answer very quickly, piece by piece. At the day of judgment, our catechism says, when will this day be? It will take place on the last day when Christ returns. Christ came the first time to pay for sins and to accomplish our salvation. And the scriptures teach that He will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. That is Hebrews 9.28. And He will also judge on that day. 
Christ Himself taught this when He said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then He will say to those on His left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is Matthew 25, 31-33, and also verse 41. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Did He came to provide for the forgiveness of sins? Yes, He did. Did He come to do that? Yes, He did. But here He Himself clearly teaches that He will judge on the last day. At the day of judgment... The bodies of the wicked being raised out of their graves, our catechism says. Notice that the resurrection day is the judgment day. On the last day when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will be raised, and so too will the dead who are not in Christ. Question 41 of our catechism taught us that on that day, those in Christ being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed both in soul and body in the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. Now here we learn that those not in Christ will be raised bodily too. John was shown a vision of this as recorded for us in Revelation 20 verses 12 through 13. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne And books were opened, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. We know the exception is this. Those written in the Lamb's book of life were not judged, but pardoned and acquitted on that day. So then our catechism is right to say that the wicked will be raised and shall be sentenced together with their souls. Just as the righteous will be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed both in soul and body and the full enjoyment of God to all eternity, so too the wicked will be judged in body and soul, that is to say, as whole persons. Lastly, our catechism says, to unspeakable torments with the devil and his angels forever. Three things should be noticed about this phrase. One, hell is described as a place of torment. And this is clearly the teaching of Scripture. Two, hell is also a place of torment for the devil and his angels. It will be a place of punishment for all who have rebelled against their Maker, the exception being those to whom God has shown mercy in Christ Jesus. You may see Revelation 20, verse 10. So all of God's creatures that have rebelled against their Maker, both of angels and of men, will be judged for eternity unless... From amongst men, they are found in Christ. Three, our catechism is right to say that this punishment is forever. Matthew 25, 41, the passage that was cited earlier, teaches this. There Jesus says to the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Some have questioned if eternal punishment fits the crime of a lifetime of sin and rebellion. Though there is some mystery concerning what heaven and hell will be like exactly, we must believe and confess what the scriptures teach. Hell is said to be eternal, and God is perfectly just. Perhaps we need to adjust our view concerning the severity of sin instead of standing in judgment over God's justice. 
Let me conclude with three suggestions for application. They will sound familiar to you because they are similar to the points of application that were made last week. One, this teaching should move you to ask the question, where will I go when Christ returns to judge? Will I be openly acknowledged and acquitted by Him and invited to experience the glories of heaven? Or will I fall under His just condemnation and be cast into the torments of hell? What makes the difference? Answer, faith in Christ. We are all born in sin. We all violate God's law in thought, word, and deed. We all deserve the torments of hell. But God has provided a Savior for us, Christ the Lord. We must be found in Him. And so I do urge you to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ as Savior. You are to confess Him as Savior. You are to have Him as Lord. Two, this teaching should move us to pray for those who do not believe in Christ and also to tell them about Jesus. These are the means that God uses to bring His people to salvation, the proclamation of the gospel in prayer. This is how men and women come to be saved. The gospel must be preached and the Spirit must work. And so we must be faithful to do what God has called us to do. And we trust that the Lord will use these means, the proclamation of the gospel and prayer, to bring about His purposes. Three, this teaching should increase our gratitude for the mercy and grace that God has shown to us in Christ Jesus. You know, in questions 35 through 41 of our catechism, we are taught about what Christ has saved us to. There we learned about the benefits that come to those who have faith in Christ in this life. Justification, adoption, sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them, namely, assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. Do you see that in this life we enjoy all of these blessings if we are in Christ Jesus? This is what Christ has saved us to There we also learned about the blessings that come to believers at the moment of death and at the resurrection. But here, in questions 42 and 43, we have learned what Christ has saved us from, namely, eternal judgment in hell. Thanks be to God for His mercy and grace shown to us in Christ Jesus.